Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Charlie Coltman. He's an old buddy of mine from the Cancerverse, from varsity soccer to epic sales guy in the pre-internet world to his best friend died from cancer, and now he's an advocacy hero with a new company called Cancer Life. It's a mobile app that connects patients to each other and does really cool things in the diagnostics and self-reporting space and the jargon of patient outcomes, but it's nerd stuff, but it works. The show's not really an advertisement for Cancer Life. It's it, he's, he's a great guy. He's just incredibly genuine, and we've been supporting each other for a very, very long time. He came to New York from Philly to join me here in the studio, and you know when you're friends with somebody and you don't see them for like five years and you see them again, it's like you never hadn't seen them and you just pick up where you started that's this show and i'm thrilled to have you guys check out our conversation enjoy the show charlie welcome to the show thanks matthew it's been a little while it has been a little while all right let's bitch about stuff uh, i'm i'm in all right i like the layperson the fact that yeah healthcare is complicated and fucked up and stupid and built the, the wrong way the right way by accident and it wasn't really meant for the end user being the patient. But where I want to start is, uh, let's explain, if we rank stupid from like one to 10, I, th I think 10 is the, the stupid of, you know, the 10 of stupid, is that pharma makes the drugs that people take, but pharma doesn't know who the people are that take the drugs. Yeah, kind of stupid. I'm a company, I make billions of dollars, but I have no idea who my customers are. Well, the customer is the doctor, right? Oh, absolutely. And that's how it's been, you know, since the the beginning. And the question is, what's a better model? And why doesn't pharma recognize that, you know what, if I build a relationship with that end user, that patient, the patient will return the favor and share how their, can their journey is going and how those drugs are working. Yeah, but our devil's advocate, is that a safety issue if you trust regular people with medications? And do you need the arbiter of Hippocrates to govern that. And wh wherein lies the rub between the, the manufacturer with the product, the person giving the product to the customer, when the doctor's really the customer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think it's, you know, everyone's trying to focus on the patient experience, but I think, you know, we you know, patients, you know, rarely have a seat at the table, and I think the best way that they can have a seat at the table is to contribute to the conversation, which is the data and how their journey is going. And what, you know, is the treatment working is a really important question. And the doctor wants to know too. 
And if the doctor doesn't even know because half the medications that they prescribed are not even picking up at the um, pharmacy, again, problem. And if anything goes wrong, you know, don't talk to us. Talk to your doctor. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, but again, this is the age-old issue. If the manufacturer that makes the drug doesn't know who's actually taking the drug and or not or yes, benefiting from it, this cottage industry crept up 20 years ago of how do we get patients to talk to pharma? And it really still hasn't really worked, has it? No. And, and, you know, this is also kind of a data problem, right? And as you know, I work in the cancer space. I'm not a cancer patient. Um, but not a requisite, by the way. Well, you listen, as much as I've been, you know, my personal journey, lo losing my best friend to pancreatic cancer almost 11 years ago, you know, started me on this journey of trying to improve care for patients. But to your point, Matthew, as I've said to you a million times, I've talked to a thousand patients, but I can never know. I still don't know what it's like to walk in their shoes because every time I hear something that's shocking, something more shocking comes down the pike, especially with cancer. But here's a, here's a stat. Problems with patients and doctors and data, right? So the electronic medical record, they go in, you fill out your little form, you go for cancer treatment, and it says, you know, how, how are things going? What are the symptoms and side effects? We fill out that little white paper form, you know, you, you literally, you check, you know, everything and you hand it in. Well, that piece of paper is called patient reported outcomes. There's nowhere for the electronic medical record to collect that data. Mary Sue at the front is just going to hand that to the doctor. The doctor's not entering that data. So in cancer alone, there are over 50 million encounters that are lost every year because that data has no place to go. That's it's written on a piece of paper with crayons. Correct. And thrown into the trash for all intents and purposes, literally in the trash. And either the doctor looks at that form and asks the patient a question, probably not, or the conversation is just lost. So the right. point is, it's also a data collection problem. So if pharma can't get to the data, what are they to do? And I think the answer, what we're talking about today, is called digital therapeutics. On the next exciting episode of Out of Patients, <laughs> what the fuck is a fax machine doing in my doctor's office? Well, it's it's an app on your phone. And, yeah. you know, when I started in this business and, I, you know, you and I have had conversations about technology and, and folks suffering cancer. It's, you know, there's obviously the stupid cancer population. The younger folks are were more technically savvy back, you know, 10 years ago. Right. All the rejections I got were my mom will never use a smartphone. They'll never use an app. Well, guess what? 10 years later... Fastest growing population, over 60% of uh, seniors have a smartphone. Right. And guess what? They're on TikTok, they're on Instagram, and they're socially connected. So again, we, we go back to the rub, which is that pharma, the manufacturers, I'll just call it the manufacturers, whether it's a therapeutic or a diagnostic, they need to know who's on these products, who's, who's taking advantage of these services. And the only arbiters who can let pharma know are the doctors, if they fill out the forms, the patients have to tell them what's wrong with them. And we can go into, we're going down the rabbit hole here yeah. of pharma doesn't know what's wrong with patients who have a problem with the drugs. It's not a one size fits all. I mean, we, a whole of the show on how nearly every trial is white people, <laughs> like massive challenges in, in diverse communities. But they, it's like Toyota doesn't know if the steering doesn't work in your car. Right, like that. It's so ridiculous that that's the way it is. Well, they know they have a they have a registration, right? They have the registration that the car manufacturer get. You know, the patient filled out. Here's my name, address, phone number, and there's some claims data, right? right. They can mine the claims data and thank you, 
University of Pennsylvania, Cedar sinai we need to understand what's going on. But that's the, a claim is only if the patient reported it. Right. Right. And it's connected to a diagnostic code, but it's basically registration versus how are you really feeling and how are you really feeling not just now, how are you feeling six months from now? How are you feeling 12 months from now? How is the drug affecting you over time? And the over time point is also the big rub. Long-term patient reported outcomes does not exist. And for something in cancer, which dramatically impacts patients' lives, not just from the disease perspective, but the symptoms and side effects associated with that treatment, the fact that it's not reported is a sin. 26 years ago, I'm out of Sloan Kettering. I'm trying to figure out my life again. And every couple of months, I'm living with my parents. And every couple of months, a letter comes in the mail from Sloan Kettering asking me how I'm doing. And I was just so angry and how I was mistreated and it was just the worst experience ever. Maybe, maybe 23, 24 years old. And I just, I wrote back, go fuck yourself on every one of them and mailed it back to Sloan Kettering. I don't want to even talk to you about how I'm feeling. I'm, but if I had, like in, in early non-EMR days, just MR days, medical record days, you know, Filofax madman days, would that have even been helpful at all? Because I'm a moving target. Now we're touching on something specific to cancer, which is the survivors out there, right? So in treatment, you're going through your cancer treatment, you hopefully get through it, and then what happens? And this is something I think you would agree with. The bullshit associated with ringing the bell, right? And yes, it's a great feeling, and it looks good on paper, and it looks good on videos that someone's ringing the bell. And we're all glad that patient is moving from active treatment to survivorship. Right. But guess what? Cancer centers don't care about survivors because there's no money in it, right? right. They basically ring the bell, and they should just say, get the hell out, right? Right. And now, other than a letter you might get in the mail every, I don't know, year, year and a half that says, you really should come back. You know, we'd love to hear from you and do a diagnostic. You know, the survivors who, who I deal with all the time are now dealing with post-treatment you know, side effects, pain management issues, you know, neuropathy. Chemo brain was not even considered a real thing up until a couple years ago when someone right. actually decided to do a study about it. Now, that was a legitimacy campaign worth having. Right. So the bottom line is, and that's patient-reported outcomes, that's long-term analysis, and really trying to understand what are the long-term implications, you know, not to mention trying to get patients back starting their lives over, you know, yeah. and, and beginning, you know, beginning over. And that challenge from a mental health perspective is is I just underappreciated from the perspective of the, the cancer team. I mean, would you agree that these are better problems to have? I mean, my, my get over it therapy in the 1990s didn't really work for me, but the whole idea of survivorship being something that could be a billable code was a new idea in 1998 when they had the March on Washington to get reimbursables for rehabilitation. Like mm -hmm. this is a real history note right here. We covered this in our documentary, The Cancer Mavericks, but you know, re it couldn't call it rehabilitation. Because there wasn't a thing for that, right? There was no drug rehab yet at the time. It was the AIDS movement and breast cancer wars. But live strong to their credit. I mean, you could slice and dice their reputation any way you want. But to their credit, they kind of tried to launch the first survivor care clinic at several hospitals with the basic standard of care of following up with patients as the idea of long-term survivorship, the gift that keeps on giving, was a really big deal. And it, it kind of flotsamed and jetsamed for a while, but it eventually became the idea behind 
like a Kevin Effinger, give this guy huge credit. MD Anderson built the Sloan Kettering long-term survivorship care program. I was like, like uh, target zero for them, like patient one for them. But it didn't really do anything to help me. It just probably gave a bunch of data. But there's no way to really know, is there? Well, I mean, now you're touching on how care is delivered in America. We can be pissed about that. But it's really a location issue, right? Like we're sitting in beautiful lower Manhattan, New York City. There are, you know, three world-class cancer centers within a quick cab ride right from here. 30% of patients are treated in these great university settings. And they do have the money and they do have the people to to set up these programs. The other 70%, however, live in rural America – they have three oncologists. Um, a lot of my patients that I engage with, their treatment is three hours away. Right. They don't have access to a let, th- ask them where they're getting their actual physical rehab, like just on their shoulder versus you know long term neuropathy. So the point is the bigger the bigger challenge for these patients is where the, they just don't have access, and access isn't because they can't afford it; they physically can't get to it. Right. Right. It's just geography. Yes. Pure geography. Absolutely. And, and I mean, this is, uh, we talk about disparities of care. It's not because they can't afford it. It's because the doctor is overwhelmed. One or two or three doctors handling every cancer type, right? Right. In, How many, in like 30 half of Montana. <laughs> there, there are 30 cancer types and other people say there are 300 cancer types. And they have to make treatment decisions for this population of people they live with. They're overwhelmed. The disparities of care can be – anyway, I could talk about how you can make better treatment decisions for these folks because you can use technology to do that. But the point is the delivery of care and the people, they just don't have – you know, they don't have a Walmart clinic. You know, if they do, they're not designed to handle everything like you that. You just penetrated the anger crust to the anger <laughs> mantle of the earth. And it's unfortunate. But, you know, technology can help. Telemedicine, I mean, it, you know, that – if any population is standing up in the audience, you know, clapping, telemedicine, being able to just check in with your doctor and to say, do I really have to come in three hours to see that you're just going to tell me, let's keep it on, keep it on the current track? And, no, there's no know. doubt that telemedicine, I, I, I've talked about telemedicine as like Amazon taking credit cards in 1999. No one would even remotely trust giving Amazon your credit card or eBay your credit card or PayPal in 1999, and today it's standard fare. So uh, is it safe to agree that, I mean, the pandemic, if it did anything positive, it encouraged people to trust telemedicine for basic stuff. Like you can show a dermatologist something on your arm, you you know, maybe there's, uh, I have a fever, quick, but how do you do telehealth in like life-threatening disease? Well, yeah, obviously, you know, especially for immunocompromised folks who are on some serious, you know, depends on the cancer, depends on, you know, the treatment protocol. But there are a lot of opportunities. And I think where it's going for the rural America, the good news is with genetic testing, where things have moved from tissue-based genetic testing and biomarker testing to liquid-based, which means blood. If you can send a nurse out to do a test and see how the patient is doing and not bother them and having to come four hours, you'd send a nurse out there, pull the blood, and the doctor just connects with you and says, I'm, you know, I'm drop shipping your new medication, and I don't have to go through a, a barrage of tests and even an invasive tissue-based test for genetic testing. That's fantastic. So there are things that are coming from a technology perspective, billing perspective, i.e. helping to pay for it, 
that delivery of care will be better. So for cheek these swab, cheek swab by drone. Seriously, and I'd honestly I'd sign up for that versus driving four hours, paying for parking, waiting in the waiting room for my doctor just to tell me, "Good to see you, everything's fine, thank you very much." And the patient's going, "I did all that for for what? I had a lot of other things to do." Before we go to break, tell me about your friend. So my best friend Chris Mattioli, uh, I'm from Philly. He was the most engaging, amazing person that I've ever met. I used to joke with him that he, used to, that he was going to be the next mayor of Philadelphia. And he said, no, Charlie, I'm not running, but I'll be the guy behind the guy. He was from Philadelphia. He moved there. He he was a bartender. He, If anyone's been to Barkley Prime, one of the best steakhouses in, in the city, he was the bartender going to night school at uh, Temple University. He got diagnosed stage three pancreatic cancer in the emergency room. Out of nowhere? Out of nowhere. There were some indications that something wasn't quite right, but Literally, and that's unfortunately for pancreatic cancer, that's kind of how you get diagnosed. You, right. you get jaundice. The tuber blocks the bile duct, and you literally have yellow eyes. And that's what happened. And he, what the sadness of the story is that he was given the best care in the world. Jefferson Health System, Charles Yeo, who invented the Whipple procedure to remove his, his tumor in his pancreas, did the actual procedure, came down from Princeton. Uh, he was actually billboard in New York City as part of a New York Times campaign saying, you can, work, you can work through this. He worked. However, he transferred his care up after about 18 months and transferred his care up to a small hospital where, close to where he lived. And essentially, his doctor treated him till death. He was on Tarsiva. He lost a lot of weight. And he died in the emergency room. Wow. No goodbyes. And I remember sitting in the... In the, in the emergency room, I asked everyone to leave. There were about 20, 25 people. I didn't think a, uh, you know, a hospital room could hold so many people. And I asked everyone to leave, and everyone knew what I was doing. And I sat there, and I held his hand, and I told him you know, three things about, about our relationship and thanking him for our friendship. And he said, Charlie, why am I here? The point is he didn't even know that he was dying. And even his wife, on, his, on our way to home to take him for hospice, called me up and said, Charlie, go back to the hospital. Ch- uh, Chris forgot his Tarsiva pill. And I said, you know, Lisa, I don't think he needs that anymore. The point is the system completely failed him. His doctor never said a thing. And that became my launch pad into quality of life matters to patients. And my mission has been to bring patients' quality of life into treatment decisions. And the best way to do that and how I'm achieving that is through data, getting patients to track their quality of life so they can make the best decisions for themselves. All right. We'll be right back with Charlie Coltman. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs. A gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. 
Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. All right, we're back. I was digging through your uh, the the litany of all things Charlie, and I saw that you did varsity soccer. Oh, absolutely. What did that mean to you as a kid? That's a great question. It meant everything to me. I had no friends when I was in third, fourth, and fifth grade. It was incredibly lonely, but as I was a kick-ass athlete. Kickball, I was left-footed because my dad sort of forced me to play with my left foot because he was trying to, he said, you know, you need to learn your left foot. And it basically became my dominant foot. So I'm right-handed, but left-footed. Wow. That's an interesting fact. So that might be our, our code word. That's but, our fun fact of the day. Right. <laughs> but the point is, at that time, the best way that I felt good about myself was scoring a fucking goal. And so soccer was my best sport. Did that drive you into the whole sales business, the, the validation of the win? Oh, my God. Jesus Christ. You know, uh, Matthew Zachary, PhD. <laughs> man, I've, I've been doing this a while. Man of mystery and, um, you know, psychologist. No, yeah, that absolutely. Um, in fact, it's so much so that whenever I started a new sales job, you know, I looked at what the top salesperson made and I, and I went for him. And I said, the best way to do that in, a, in techno technology is where I've gone. I started SAP. I worked for Ariba. These are large IT systems, two to three, five million dollars a pop. And what I would do is take the technology into a new industry. Because if you can own an industry, you can sell a lot of it. So that was kind of my goal is I would always go where the where the sales manager didn't want me to go because what do they want? They went transactions, close, close, close. And I'm like, I was always going for the for the golden goose deal. Yeah. So you never fancied yourself a health entrepreneur until it landed on you with the loss of your friend. Yes. I, well, actually, my first sales job was selling billing systems to, to doctors in the mid 90s. So. Oh, wow. So that was literally my first cold calling, and I learned the secret pitch to sell to a doctor in healthcare, especially when it comes to his practice. I remember a surgeon came in, you know, I'm waiting in the waiting room. I'm 20, you know, two years old, and I'm waiting in the waiting room, and he's just come back from surgery. He looks like, literally, like he's got blood on his, on his sleeve. And he goes, I'm exhausted. You've got one minute to tell me why I need this, meaning why do I need a billing system? I just said... There's two reasons, Doc. Get paid faster. Your girls won't complain as much. He goes, I'll call you tomorrow. They got, got to got see to their dad. Yeah. <laughs> you could be a dad. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. We know that all too well. Well, his yeah. girls, I met actually his his billing managers, right? The folks, the administrative oh, staff. the staff girls. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Is that sexist these days? We Probably. We get canceled for saying Listen, that. folks, it's, it was 1996. <laughs> uh, you know. Friends was on. It was a different world. It was. You know, Nirvana was still hot. Yeah. But Six Kurt, white people Kurt, in a rent-controlled rent apartment. But yeah. Kurt Cobain was dead. So. <laughs> yeah, that is true. That is true. So, yeah, I mean, this whole idea of how do I make things suck less 
you know, would you agree that uh, I, I like to say the healthcare system isn't broken? It's built by design, and it's the responsibility of the citizens of the country to bend it to our will. How do you feel about that? Well, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, the fundamental question you have to ask when you're inside of healthcare, and and especially on the entrepreneurial side, right? We're both entrepreneurs. We're trying to figure out how to build a business. The qu- first question is who's who's paying? Right. Someone is paying. Is it the doctor paying to deliver care? Is it the payer? Is the insurance company going to pay? Is the pharmaceutical company going to pay? Is the patient going to pay? Is the patient going to pay? Who pays, right? So the problem is even if you have the best system in the world, if you can't answer that question or target it, because ultimately the healthcare system – here's one for you that I, that I thought about a couple of years ago. The healthcare system, when it comes to paying for care, is basically – your college for all your three college fraternity brothers who don't have jobs when the bill comes and they, they everyone's partying and the bill comes and they plop it down on the table right everyone's pointing at each other going he's paying <laughs> so inadvertently you get thrown around right. right because nobody everyone says why should i pay and so it's like it's like trying to pay for a check on with a big group yeah. you know brunch it's you know ridiculous. who's paying who's paying so yeah the system is it's Remember, keep in mind, it's also the most advanced healthcare system in the world. You know, we can all say that we want nationalized healthcare, but, you know, try to get a colonoscopy without colon guard because that's not approved in the NIH. And right. it takes nine months and you might be bleeding blood and they're still not going to take you. Right. So, you know, I don't know if that's necessarily the answer, but I think the, bo- the bottom line is the best way that patients can, can unite is, is really through data. That's what doctors know. Yeah, but is that really fair, right? We talk about how, uh, you know, the average person in crisis or in post-traumatic crisis may or may not be able to have critical decision-making skills at that point. And you're dependent or reliant on a Walmart reader in the shit happens to her that doesn't exist. The other side of this is because of the lack of trust in the system, in their doctors. Trust. The doctors are not, you know, my doctor doesn't listen to me. Half of medical advice coming from a doctor is not followed, right? Medical adherence is is a huge problem. It's so, dismal, yeah. So trust is an issue, and I guess all those conspiracy theories that are out there doesn't help either. Yeah, that fucking moon <laughs> landing, I swear to God. My, what were they thinking? Yeah, I don't believe that, that cancer has been invented by the pharmaceutical industry, nor do I think there's a secret cure in a secret basement. I think it's, it's that's, you know, I think, I think the cure- I've been to that basement, by the way. Really? Yeah. Is that where the it's made of adamantium and uh, and and whatever Wakanda and does. the KFC <laughs> yeah. uh, recipe is also uh, in there. Colonel Sanders. I always say that you know there are plenty of pharma executives that do very well, but their kids also die from cancer. And if there was a cure in a jar, it would probably be out there already. Well, I mean, you know, it's a series of breakthroughs, right? I mean, the unsung, unsung heroes are all the. The folks that I've literally spent 10 years – I mean, it, let's use COVID as an example. The point is Moderna, they didn't all of a sudden invent it. They weren't like, oh, well, you have to – like they were working on this for 10 years. Well, mRNA, people don't even realize oh, this. Oh, my God. Yeah, well, let's talk about that. I mean yeah. that's like the penicillin of our generation. Yeah. And they just announced their um, their partnership with Merck saying we think we have you know indications of a cancer vaccine. Right. The point is it's, it's 10,000 really – hard, dedicated workers uh, over spending over 20 years that are making those incremental breakthroughs in in treatment for cancer. Well, that's uh, the overnight success that took two decades. 
Yes, you're right. It's the famous uh, comedian <laughs> said that, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jackie. Jackie Mason. Jackie Mason, yes. I think so. Absolutely. We're going all full Jewish here with our space lasers and everything. That's it. That's it. All right. So let's get to your, your product. Let's get to, you know, you, you channeled all of this into something that we hope is making a difference. I'll, I'll predicate this by saying that back in 2012 at Stupid Cancer, my co-founder Kenny and I had this idea of it was way ahead of its time, Tinder for cancer. That was our idea. Can there be a dating app for cancer patients to meet each other? There was no grinder. There was there was nothing that that matched communities with communities at the time. I mean, there, there was I, just Craigslist. There was well, there was like <laughs> like I think JDate was still on a website at that point. Now Match.com was still a website. There was no like uh, whatever those. I mean, there were no there apps. Were, no, no, there was no online dating. There was only happy hour still. Right. But it was basically just what does peer-to-peer mean right. on a platform? And what the nonprofits did was they introduced you to a club you didn't want to be a part of, but you're glad you're there. Right. And that was the idea behind can we do this on an iPhone 4? Right. right. <laughs> Whatever it was back then. And it and, was it was, called, and yours was text-based too, I remember. It was, it was a pure text app. Instapeer was a pure text-based app. It did nothing but instant messaging with other members. And, and we were – you, we couldn't scale it as a charity. It was a great idea as a yeah. proof of concept. And it eventually buzzed out and fizzled out. But it, it led to this idea of like we were ahead of our time. But now we're at a prime time where this idea, this model of peer-to-peer connection, but with more depth and breadth from a user experience, can actually help people live better lives. Talk to us about, about your product. So my product is called Cancer Life. Let me talk the first part of my journey. I immediately start building, and which is usually a mistake, but I did. my idea was to do remote patient monitoring. So wouldn't it be great if, and whenever you walk into cancer, you walk in with the idea that, you know, idealistic, you know, I'm going to change it all. Well, I did. We, we had a pilot at Frederick Cancer Center um, immediately. I mean, it was, it was in, within the first six weeks, I had some director... Mark Soberman, who's a fabulous guy, who just came out of Georgetown Business School, and it was like, you know, he was so patient-centric. So small little cancer center, decisions were easy to be made. We did a pilot. 21 patients signed up, and they basically used Cancer Life in our first Indian-based, international, cheap-based software technology. And we used an India company. Uh, Minimally viable product. Worked. Yeah, listen— Let's just say that if coding is an art form, they're the finger painting of, of coders. <laughs> um, they can get you a product and they can show it in front of your class to your parents. But believe me, it's not you know, something you want to put in the exhibit. There's a billion of them and listening it, to the show, by the way. Well, good. Listen, <laughs> you guys need some actual formal training, not just going on GitHub and, and, and oh boy. Learning, you know, anyway. My point is we did do a pilot. And the issue was the patients loved it. They, we had letters being written to the director. This is the greatest system. Essentially what Cancer Life is, is you share using emojis and icons how you're feeling, list your symptoms, and you share it in a social network, and you could get your friends and family to comment. So it was, you know, it was kind of like CaringBridge meets data collection. CaringBridge. Wow. Are they still around? I don't know. Okay. I, I believe me. I've tried that's to- a great, That's a great elevator pitch, though. Well, they they- they had the first system. They, you know, to their credit, the first online social network was used with cancer patients mm-hmm. that they could say, "Hey, get all my friends and family." When there's a major update, but unfortunately, with CaringBridge, you're not going to use it for the day-to-day purpose. You're only going to do it every six months when you know there's usually good news, and you don't want to use it when there's bad news, right? Because there's shitstorm that follows, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Everyone shows at your house and bringing flowers, and they're, they're anyway. Uh, I digress. But the point is we did a pilot, and that's called remote patient monitoring, where the actual cancer center would buy the system and they would interact with patients. Well, there's a problem is this, and it goes to who pays. 
Do you know that 40% of the cost of delivering care, meaning the revenue that is generated by the cancer center, because cancer centers are the number one profitable center in, a, in, a, in an actual hospital, 40% of that revenue is actually gotten in the emergency room. It's the treatment and it's the doctor billing, but it's also the emergency room. So I'm trying to actually improve that, and I'm walking at cancer centers in 2012, 13, and 14 going, I can lower your emergency room visits. And I had an administrator pull me aside and said, I don't want to do that. Right, because it's going to cost them. They're going to lose revenue. Gonna, thank you for using my words against me. No, I mean, and that, and that became the rub. And I said, a cancer center has a disincentive to lower their emergency room visits. Right. Again, this is 2012. You know, in terms of where we are in terms of value-based care and all this other stuff. Right. I could talk about that for an hour. But the bottom line is that was a realization that I wasn't going to win that battle. Mm -hmm. The other thing, and this just goes to everything healthcare, anyone here who's, you know, listening that may have a healthcare startup, do not disrupt the workflow of the doctor. Mm -hmm. In, in cancer specifically, and that was the other realization, as cancer moves to genetic testing of tissue profiling, and those companies need to do a 10 times better job, and there's going to be a whole wave of innovation around that, doctors literally are paging through 12 pages, PDF pages, to try to figure out what type of genetic marker is this and what drug do yeah, I need? It's just a, keeping up. It's 40, And then I have to enter all that information into the like literally... A doctor, like world-class doctor, is spending 45 minutes per patient per probably every two weeks entering all that data. The point is don't disrupt their workflow. They're right. really busy. Right. Do they really want to be messaging patients? And when we did the final kickoff meeting of our pilot, I saw the look on the head nurse's face when she said, what next? I said, well, let's roll this out to everyone. And she looked at me like I just pissed in her punch bowl. Oh, boy. And I real that face is burned in my brain. And I said, the cancer centers, as much as they would love to, don't have time. They don't have the IT staff. They're not going to be able to implement these systems. And to this day, almost 10 years later, you know, there are two or three companies that are out there right now. And between all of them, they got less than five cancer centers implementing remote patient monitoring in cancer care. So does that explain why this is billed as a consumer product? Correct. Exactly. So so in 2017, I threw out all my- I mean billed like paid for it. Like it's being marketed as a consumer product. Yeah. And, and my goal was in 2017, I just decided two things. One, throw out all the software code, build it from scratch. Two, this needed to be direct to patients. And so, and I needed to validate it. That was the other thing. I saw how digital health was going. If I can't prove it to patients and doctors that this app actually, in a validated way, and we'll talk about what validated means, in a meaningful way, improves quality of life, then guess what? I'm just going to be another cancer app. The 10,000 other ones that are out there um, that I'm sure Matthew Zachary has seen or heard about there over are the years. a lot of them. Right. And, and so my point was I needed to start over. And so I decided to run a fully randomized control trial on cancer life to improve quality of life, and we just completed that study, and we'll be publishing our results. But we've had them validated through a third party called the Validation Institute, ironically. And Who named that? <laughs> well, I guess they were going for what we do. It's right? the same people that named the walkie-talkie. You know, it's, instead of Nike, it should be like the best freaking shoes in the country. Right, right? exactly. But the point is we ran a fully randomized two-arm control study. That means the same 
study design that a pharmaceutical company would use to get FDA approval on their drug, we ran the same thing. And the results are we raised quality of life by 14.3% per patient and reduced, most importantly, reduced their symptom burden of each patient by 66%. All right, we're going to take another quick break and then a quick epilogue with Charlie because this is cool stuff and it's really important that we, we get as much out of this as possible. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, you had me at evidence-based app yeah the whole idea first of all evidence-based to i mean most people hopefully know what this means is like it actually works you can track how it works you can measure how it works you know that by doing this the trajectory of someone's behavior has changed for good right and you've made it suck less clinically right how does a bill become a law how do you get an app to be evidence-based when it's not clinical And then what does that mean for its potential to eventually become something that is paid for and given to everyone by a doctor? Because distribution is very limited. So I think we are in a crossroads. Not many digital companies have done fully validated studies, right? So it depends on the the highest – the level and quality of the study that you're running and you want to hit that level of therapeutic and you want to get FDA approval. The problem is there's no billing codes for a doctor to prescribe them and then us, the the app company, get paid. So we're, there needs to be a bill that's passed. I think literally last week they were on the Capitol Hill. There is a bill that is going to you know try to legalize this to get um, app companies. So long as they've run and they've got FDA approval and they, they've shown validation at the highest level – Eventually, you know, this market will be formed. So if it's not approved and there's no billing code, it's doctors don't care about it. Well, first of all, doctors care about it if doctors will care if they know that their patients are going to benefit and patients are going to benefit if there is a validated study with published results that they can click onto. And that that's kind of where I am, is that publishing those results to convince oncologists that we could raise quality of life and lower symptom burden, which only helps them from their quality perspective. Right, because you're looking at, like, what is the adoption model? I'm, I'm sure it'd be much easier if, if, if it's reimbursable. Oh, well, of course. Yeah, I mean, the, there, there's kind of two revenue models of the company. One is data, right? So we're collecting long-term patient-reported outcomes that we discussed. That de-identified data, we can lo- run phase four expansion studies as well as, more importantly, safety studies. So these studies are required by the FDA. 
when you get an accelerated approval by the FDA, they say, that's fine. However, you better run studies to make sure that this is not impacting patients. You had 30 patients in your clinical trial. You want to roll this out to 30,000. Let's see how they're doing. So if there's a platform that's collecting that data, we can run those studies virtually so that patients can literally one click, sign up, contribute their data, de-identified, and move on. And that's, that's sort of the foundation of, of our revenue model. Phase two, as these legislation gets finalized and there's actually a reimbursable code that a doctor could then prescribe cancer life, um, that's, that's also where it's headed. But we're, we still have a little bit of time, a couple of years before that's true. All right. Last question. You know, I always talk about the oh shit window. When you find out something bad has happened to you and then when whatever needs to happen to you because of that bad thing starts to happen. And it could be a day, a week, a month. And who is protecting that poor citizen? that consumer in that moment by making them aware of things they never thought to look for in a supply-only economy. In an ideal setting, how would that cancer patient be made aware of your product in a trustworthy way that would make them adopt it right then and there? Right. So we're talking about distribution strategy and you know how is the patient introduced? And I think for me, it's, it's been a challenge to find those partners. I think at this stage, it's partner. It could be a nonprofit. There are several of them out, and they have existing patients where they're, you know, patients tell patients. We know that, right? And if, you know, I'm one of my strategies is to suggest if, if it's a validated product and the quality is there, who wouldn't want to raise their quality of life, right? Number one. Number two, there are other partner companies that I'm identifying that are in those moments when they are the ones delivering the information, they're the genetics companies. You know, the onco-type onco score of, you know, how is, am I going to respond to the treatment? Those companies exist, and I think they're an interesting partnership. So for me, at this stage, it's, it's really through a partnership model. Well, we both agree that every patient deserves to know shit exists, that they never thought they need, and that it's almost like a liberty entitlement that why wouldn't you want to know that there's something there that can help you? Charlie Coltman, varsity soccer, Philly Mensch. And the CEO and founder of Cancer Life, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Matthew. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is an Offscript Health production. The executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. It's mixed and edited by Kyle Moore. If you like the show, ratings and reviews are always welcome. Leave us a message anytime at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-AUDIO-66 to share your healthcare shitness with us. And we might just play them on the air on a future episode. For more information about this show and Offscript Health, visit Offscript.com. That's Offscript, no T, dot com. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.